Welcome to the Liberty Block. This is Elliot Axelman. We have a special video and podcast for you today. It is Monday, March 1st, 2021, and the House Legislative Administration Committee, I believe, had a hearing this morning. I was half asleep from exhausted from work over the weekend uh, with barely any rest, so I was exhausted during the hearing. So they had a hearing this morning on House Concurrent Resolution 2, which was sponsored by Melissa Blasek. A state rep from Merrimack, and it would end the state of emergency if it were passed. So the public hearing allowed for everyone from the public and some legislators and some other experts that we'll get into. It allowed them all to express their opinion. I expressed my opinion, and boy did I. I said almost everything I wanted to, almost as strongly as I wanted to. Um, I was limited by me being exhausted and by some time constraints and by not wanting to get myself in trouble and go to prison for too long. But I said I said some pretty strong words for the committee, as well as many other experts in fields from law to uh, spiritualism, religion, uh, constitutional law, history, medicine, epidemiology, and all sorts of other stuff, including the sponsor of the bill himself, the, the bill that created the state of emergency law. Because until 2001, 9-11, we didn't have a state of emergency in New Hampshire. The governor literally had no mechanism to take this power. So the sponsor spoke also in favor of ending this ridiculous state of emergency. So in a few minutes, we're just going to get into pretty raw audio of just all of the testimony, almost all of the uh, witnesses who spoke in the hearing, myself included. It turns out it's like 36 minutes. I'm trying to render the video now. I'll put this as the intro, and it'll, it'll all be on the website and the Rumble and the podcast. And as you watch the video, keep in mind a few key points about this state of emergency. It's been going on for about a year. The governor has renewed it. Sorry, the dictator has renewed it like, I don't know, uh, 10, 15, 20 times. However many times is uh, 21 days in, in uh, however many increments of 21 days it takes to get to like almost a year. So he's had a total of 80 emergency orders, meaning he's totally shut out the legislature in the process. And I kept telling the legislative body, you guys are impotent, spineless, irrelevant. The governor has taken the power from you and you're you're uh, irrelevant. You're useless. Take your power back. It's so easy. Just pass this, this resolution or pass a bill or just tell the governor to stand down. So keep that in mind. The fact that the, the governor has become a dictator, because technically speaking, dictator by definition means someone who is a rule by one person. And keep in mind due process. We, we talk a lot about due process on Liberty Block in our articles and videos and podcasts. Due process means that a person in the civilized 21st century in the Western world is presumed innocent until proven guilty not presumed guilty but if you're going to presume them guilty like they do in many instances in the united states unfortunately at least give them a potential mechanism to prove that they are innocent okay we'll assume that they're guilty i get pulled over you assume i'm guilty i owe you a fine at least you know it's wrong i should be presumed innocent until you prove in court that i'm guilty and i'm convicted by a jury but at least if you're going to presume that i'm guilty give me the potential one in a billion chance opportunity to go to court and prove that I'm innocent. With COVID, literally that does not even exist. It is the worst assault on the basics of criminal justice in history of existence. Except for maybe Nazism, where if you were a Jew, you couldn't prove you're not a Jew and they would just kill you anyway. But not only are they presuming that you're guilty, which in this case would would mean by definition you are sick and contagious with the virus, but they don't even give you any potential because if you get a negative test and walk out of the lab and say, look, I got a test by Mr. Biden, CDC, Fauci, uh, Johns Hopkins themselves, and the test says I am 100% guaranteed negative for COVID. Try wearing, try walking around and breathing without a mask. A police officer will punish you, right? In, in all 50 states, including New Hampshire. So there is literally no way you can get a negative test. You can say you had the virus. You can have confirmed by Dr. Fauci and your own doctor a year ago you had the virus. You have antibodies. You have total immunity. You can get both vaccines. You can get every goddamn vaccine and the negative test. Still, it is literally impossible. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? There's no potential to prove it. It's like saying, we think that you killed Mr. Smith. We're going to presume you're guilty. You're going to jail. No trial. We're, you're presumed guilty. But you can't even prove your innocence because if you go to court, we're going to say, screw you. And the, the judge will instruct the jury to 100% come back with, he will compel them legally. The court will compel the jury to come back with a guilty verdict no matter what. Meaning there's zero potential to even prove your innocence. This is technically speaking, I know it's not a Holocaust or not burning 6 million Jews, but technically speaking, as far as the, the technicalities and the mechanism of due process and the criminal justice system, this is the worst assault I've ever 
I could ever imagine in the history of existence. I can't imagine anything worse because they're presuming you're guilty and not even giving you any potential mechanism for uh, legal relief. So with that, keep keep all those things in mind. Keep the medicine in mind. Keep the fact that the, the statistics are inflated by 100 to 1,000 fold. And we'll link that article in this the show notes as well. Keep in mind that the schools are closed and children are being abused with masks and not being allowed to lower their mask or play outside with friends or go to school or do anything like normal kids do, even though a total of between 100 and 200 kids, 241 at the top end, have died throughout the whole COVID from winter of 2019 all the way through winter of 2021. So keep that in mind as well. So keep in mind that it's not nearly as dangerous as the elites are making it seem. It's not nearly as contagious as the elites are making it seem. And especially for children who, who, again, more kids are killed by drowning and by fires and all sorts of other accidents and choking than from COVID. So keep that in mind as well. And with that, we'll go right into the testimony on the hearing and enjoy. Let me know what you think. Check out libertyblock.com for more. Representative Lasik. Yes, we can hear you fine. Welcome to House Legislative Legislative Administration. Uh, The floor is yours. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, members of the committee. To quote James Madison from Federalist Paper Number 84, an elective disposition was not the government we fought for, but one in which the powers of government should be so divided and balanced among the several bodies of magistracy as that no one could transcend their legal limits without being effectually checked and restrained by the others. To further quote James Madison, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditarily self-appointed or elective, may be justly pronounced the very definition of tyranny. RFA 445 was never intended to dive the citizens of this state into a prolonged indefinite state of emergency, nor was it intended to hand the executive branch unlimited authority with the ability to suspend statute, the Constitution, and civil liberties. But unfortunately, while that was not the spirit of the law, the result in this current state of emergency has been just that. Unlimited authority delivered to the executive branch with no oversight. To quote Thomas Paine, a constitution defines and limits the powers of the government it creates. It therefore follows as a natural and also a logical result that the governmental exercise of any power not authorized by the constitution is an assumed power and therefore illegal. Part one, article 29 of the New Hampshire State Constitution says, the powers of suspending the laws or the execution of them ought never to be exercised but by the legislature or by authority derived therefrom to be exercised in such particular cases only as the legislature may expressly provide for. RSA 445 does not expressly provide the executive branch with the ability to suspend statute, but in this state of emergency, it has been an assumed power. Part one, article 37 of the New Hampshire State Constitution reads, in the government of this state, the three essential powers thereof to wit, the legislative, executive, and judicial, ought to be kept as separate from and independent of each other as the nature of a free government will admit. Now, I fully understand that in times of crisis, a bending of the rules must be made to allow for concise and swift action. But the necessity for such timely decisions that can be made by the stroke of a pen has long since passed. The handling of the COVID-19 crisis can and should be made through a constitutionally appropriate process that includes 425 minds working together, not just one. As legislators, it is our duty and our right to uphold our constitutional oath and restore and protect the constitution of this state. RSA 445-2C states, the legislature may terminate a state of emergency by concurrent resolution adopted by a majority vote of each chamber. The governor's power to renew a declaration of state of emergency shall terminate upon the adoption of a concurrent resolution under this subparagraph. The immediate crisis that precipitated this emergency was that the projected hospitalization rate of COVID-19 would outstrip resources. By the beginning of summer of 2020, our hospitals were better equipped. It became evident that we would not exceed hospital capacity so much that we chose to shut down our surge flex facilities. Indeed, we have never exceeded 75% of the total inpatient bed capacity in New Hampshire, and the percentage of those with COVID-19 peaked at 11.6%. While COVID-19 continues to spread, the reality is there is no longer a crisis that prevents the legislature from working, nor is there a crisis that requires immediate actions on the part of the executive branch. While it has been challenging to figure out the financial situation in regards to the federal funding of the state of emergency, I have spoken to other states who have had state agencies do this research. 
uh, Wisconsin in particular. And I have consulted with lawyers about the Stafford Act, the CARES Act, and the Consolidated Appropriations Act. Ultimately, it seems that because we are in a national state of emergency, we do not need New Hampshire to be in a state of emergency to receive support from these acts. This resolution is not meant to be a criticism of the COVID-19 mitigation strategies employed by the executive branch, nor is it a statement that the pandemic is over. It is a declaration that we are restoring our republic. In a letter to William Hunter, Thomas Jefferson wrote, the Republican is the only form of government which is not eternally at open or secret war with the rights of mankind. In conclusion, it is time to restore our constitutional republic by ending the state of emergency to protect the health, safety, and the liberty of the people of New Hampshire. Chair recognizes uh, Representative Lakes. Thank you. And uh, first, I'd like to apologize to those on Zoom. Uh, given the setup here, I have to turn my back on someone. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman and committee. I'm Tony Leckis, representing Hillsborough County District 37, the towns of Hudson and Pelham. While COVID has been a serious health problem and many have died of it, many others have died or been otherwise harmed by the response to COVID. While the COVID deaths are before us in the news almost daily, the harm caused by COVID is less obvious, but just as real. A study by the National Bureau of Economic Research concluded that the pandemic and recession were associated with 10 to 60 percent increase in deaths of despair above the already high pre-pandemic levels. That study, as well as the CDC, also concluded that opioid overdoses were the highest ever recorded in a 12-month period in 2020. While unemployment benefits have been increased and extended, According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, over 40% of those who lost their jobs due to the emergency mandates are not expected to regain them. By November 2020, more than 100 million Americans were not working, which is up over 9 million from the same in uh, 2019. Unemployment is associated with a 60% increase in mortality, and this impact is likely to continue long after the emergency mandates have ended. Looking at the projected levels of unemployment from 2020 to 2029, according to the Robert Graham Center for Policy Studies in Family Medicine and Primary Care, they estimate over 70, uh, sorry, over 27,000 additional suicides if the COVID restrictions end immediately, and over 154,000 additional suicides if they last longer. A study published in Lancet Psychiatry found a ninefold higher number of suicides associated with unemployment. Unemployment is not the only source of harm caused by the response to the pandemic. Social isolation and loss of close social contact raise, raises the risks of heart attack and stroke and increases death from all causes by 50%. The Kaiser Family Foundation researchers reported stress symptoms had nearly doubled since March 2020, including difficulty sleeping, eating disorders, increased drinking and substance abuse, and worsening, worsening of chronic health conditions. The impacts of the emergency mandates fall particularly harshly on minorities and those of lower socioeconomic status. According to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York report, the number of active black small business owners fell 41% from February through April. That's almost uh, you know, half. In a meta-analysis published by Frontiers in Psychiatry, 24 studies concluded that COVID prevention and mitigation efforts resulted in vulnerable populations such as psychiatric patients, low-income individuals, and minorities being put at high risk for mental distress and self-harm. Even if you believe that the threat from COVID justified the state of emergency, which I believe it, it did, especially initially when we weren't sure how bad it would be, we need to end it as soon as possible to reduce the future harm it will cause and to start to recover from its impact, especially on those least able to deal with it. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and committee for your time. I sent, I can uh, send a copy of this if you like, and I sent um, another sheet with links to the studies I've uh, quoted from and, uh, and others as well. Thank you. And I'll be that. glad to take questions. You will take questions? I will. Are there any questions? No, Mr. Chairman. Yes. Yeah. Um, when people are introduced, can you let us know what they do? If that's what you meant, make sure that's what it says. And I'm hopeful that you'll pass House Concurrent Resolution 2 
and that you'll tweak the law as it is to say that the governor can't just unilaterally decide to renew an order that gives him total control and only allows him to do so in a situation where the legislature can't possibly meet together in a quorum to actually take control and do what's necessary. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. I'll take any questions if you have any. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. I'm Representative Leah Cushman from WHERE. I serve on the Health, Human Services, and Elderly Affairs Committee, and I'm speaking today in support of HCR2. As a registered nurse, health is very important to me. As an American, a resident of New Hampshire, and as a legislator, the rights of individuals are also very important to me. When considering appropriate government action in mitigating communicable diseases, it is vital that a balance is maintained so that policies implemented are as least restrictive as possible in relation to the level of threat to the public. After examining the toll of COVID-19 on New Hampshire and the measures taken by government to mitigate it, it is clear to me that the state of emergency declared by the governor is no longer necessary. Every death is a tragedy and the information I will be providing in my testimony is no, in no way meant to minimize the pain that families who have lost loved ones have endured. The forthcoming information provides context and perspective. According to New Hampshire DOS Division of Vital Records, a total of 13,532 people died in New Hampshire in 2020. And of those deaths, 805 or 6% died with COVID-19, according to New Hampshire DHHS. 12% of the total population of New Hampshire are age 70 and older. About 90% of those who have died with COVID-19 are in this age group. Just under 80% of all New Hampshire deaths in 2020 with COVID-19 were in long-term care facilities. Additionally, 60% of New Hampshire's population are aged 0 to 49. That's about 780,000 people. Within this group, there are 15 total deaths with COVID-19 reported, or 0.002%. Those 15 were all between the ages of 20 and 49. Thankfully, there are zero reported deaths with COVID-19 in anyone aged 19 and under in New Hampshire. As you can see from these numbers, the relative risk of dying with COVID-19 in New Hampshire for the overwhelming majority of the population is very small. Let's put this into context. In New Hampshire in 2020, 3.5 times as many people died of heart disease than COVID-19. 3.4 times as many people died of cancer than COVID. The infamous Spanish flu of 1918 and 1919 resulted in the death of about 3,000 Granite Staters, which is more than three times as many deaths with COVID-19, at a time when the population of New Hampshire was about one-third of what it is today. Now, one of the main reasons to justify the start of and continuation of the state of emergency in the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic was the need to slow the spread, flatten the curve, or in other words, avoid overwhelming New Hampshire hospitals and resources. Fortunately, overflow facilities set up last spring were never needed and were soon dismantled. In fact, New Hampshire hospitals never exceeded 75% capacity throughout the entire period from March 2020 through now. At its highest point in terms of hospitalizations in early January of 2021, only 11.6% of all inpatient beds were occupied by COVID-19 patients. In conclusion, the threat to the general population by COVID-19 does not warrant the continuation of the state of emergency. DHHS has authority over long-term care facilities and the ability to focus mitigation efforts where they are most needed without emergency orders. The legislature is the proper body for lawmaking, not the chief executive. It is high time for restoring the constitutional balance of power. I urge the members of the committee to give HCR2 an ought to pass recommendation. I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for hearing my testimony. Due to a time constraint this morning, I will not be taking any questions, but I will submit my testimony via email to the committee members. Thank you. A requested expert from Stanford University, uh, Mr. Batichera. Uh, welcome. Thank you for uh, getting up early and coming and speaking with us. And, and oh, thanks for having me. I'm honored. The floor is yours. Okay, thank you for uh, thank you all for having me talk. Uh, I, so in these brief remarks, I hope to provide some reasons behind my strong support of HR, HCR2, which if enacted will lift the COVID-19 state of emergency order. So I have three arguments. First, uh, the availability of the COVID-19 vaccines, including the newly approved Johnson & Johnson vaccine, in effect defangs the virus. Uh, 
Uh, all three of the approved vaccines are incredibly effective in preventing hospitalizations and deaths caused by SARS-CoV-2 infection. And that's true even after a single dose of even the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Um, New Hampshire has actually done a pretty good job of vaccinating its population quickly. To date, uh, in, by the statistics I looked up yesterday, 16.5% of the population have received at least one dose of the vaccine and 7% have received both doses. Even more importantly, New Hampshire is making good progress in vaccinating its elderly population and nursing home residents. Um, I think something like 19% of New Hampshire's population is over the age of 65. And by my rough projection, which I conducted yesterday, I anticipate that nearly all of them will have been offered a vaccine well before the end of March. Crucially, I believe nearly every nursing home resident in New Hampshire has already been offered a vaccine or is, is about to be. Uh, nearly, I think somewhere, somewhere between 70 and 80% of, of COVID-related deaths in New Hampshire have, have been linked to nursing homes. So prioritizing that population of vaccine has yielded already and will continue to yield a great return in terms of reduced morbidity and mortality associated with COVID infection. It's no accident that the COVID death rate in New Hampshire has dropped by a factor of 10 from its peak of one death per 100,000 residents on January 8th to 0.1 deaths per 100,000 residents at the end of February, a 10 times drop. The population over 70 faces a much higher risk of mortality after infection than does the population under 70. According to data published by the World Health Organization, the infection survival rate for people under 70 is 99.95%, while it's only 95% for people over 70. The older populations protected by vaccine, uh, once that happens, we will never again see the high death count from the virus that we saw last year. The vaccine transforms this epidemic from an absolutely deadly, terrible epidemic into something much, much, much more manageable. Second, the harms from the lockdown are manifold and devastating, including worse cardiovascular disease outcomes, less cancer screening, deteriorating mental health, to name a few. The social isolation induced by the lockdowns and the, and the, and the state of emergency have led to sharp rise in opioid and drug-related overdoses, similar to the deaths of despair that occurred during the, the 2008 Great Recession. Social isolation of the elderly has contributed to a sharp rise in dementia-related deaths around the country. For children, the cessation of in-person schooling and, and the replacement of in-person schooling with, with online schooling or, or in hybrid schooling with, with severe restrictions has led to catastrophic learning losses with, with severe adverse consequences for affected students' lifespans. According to a CDC estimate, one in four young adults this past June seriously considered suicide. One in three adults worldwide are clinically depressed or anxious as a, with clinical anxiety during the lockdown. Um, the state of emergency has had absolutely devastating effects, even on populations where COVID poses a relatively small risk. Like I just said, the 99.95% survival for people under 70. The harms of the lockdown are unequally distributed. Economists have found that only 37% of jobs in the U.S. can be performed wholly online, and the high-paying jobs are overrepresented among that set. You, I think of now of the, of the lockdowns as a as trickle-down epidemiology. They serve to protect the relatively well-off while exposing the, the relatively poor to the infection. Um, third and finally, once the vulnerable population is protected the vaccine, the imposition of lockdown on net, uh, on net harms the population. Some have argued for a lockdown policy that aims at reducing COVID spread to zero. This is a foolish and short-sighted policy goal that will continue to the devastating harms we've seen from the lockdown while yielding little in terms of population health benefit. The SARS-CoV-2 virus has none of the epidemiologic properties of a disease that can be eradicated. It's too widespread in the population worldwide. It's not good enough for disease to be eradicated in New Hampshire, but we need to eradicate it worldwide or else the disease would constantly be reintroduced in the population. And we see a cycle of lockdowns like we've seen in New Zealand, four so far to date, week, weeks long, um, with deep uncertainty in, in economic outcomes. Uh, there are animal reservoirs for virus, including dogs, cats, bats, and mink, and other mammals. Eradicating human transmission would not be enough to get rid of the disease. Are, are we prepared to sacrifice our pets also? Eradication would require universal vaccination, but the vaccine has not been tested in some populations who can transmit the disease, including children and pregnant women. It's unethical to mandate vaccination in populations where the vaccine has not been tested. The only human disease that's ever been eradicated worldwide is smallpox, and that effort took decades, even with the availability of a good vaccine. SARS-CoV-2 eradication is impossible and should not be attempted. The best policy is to protect the vulnerable with the vaccine, that is folks in nursing homes, elderly people, and others with chronic diseases that, that predispose them to poor outcomes, and end the lockdown to stop the damages doing the population at large. This can be accomplished within, with, with, at the current rate of vaccination within a month. The bill under consideration by the New Hampshire legislature would accomplish this purpose, and I strong, stand strongly in favor of it. Thank you.
I'm happy to take questions if I have time, or also if I don't, I, I've also did, submitted my uh, testimony on um, at, at, in written form. Thank you very much. Um, are there any questions? Many room. Uh, seeing them on Zoom, I have one question, um, and I was neglectful in the beginning. Uh, you've been billed by the prime sponsor as an expert. Uh, do you have uh, in, in what area is your specialty? Uh, sure. So I am I uh, I am uh, a professor of medicine at Stanford University. I have published um, over the last two decades uh, in peer-reviewed journals on infectious disease epidemiology and infectious disease policy. Uh, I, I'm a, I have an MD and a PhD in uh, in economics. My um, uh, area is health economics. I've written extensively about the uh, health economics and in particular about epidemiology and health economics, including a, a textbook I've written on, on the subject. I've written on HIV policy, H1N1 policy, uh, on, uh, uh, H, uh, on a whole series of, of, uh, of articles in the pre-COVID era. Um, on infectious disease. I've also, during the during uh, COVID, I've written on, um, I was I wrote the first seroprevalence study in Los Angeles County peer, peer reviewed, uh, measuring the extent of the spread of, H of, of uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus in the early in the, in the early days of the epidemic. Uh, as well, I've written on uh, evaluating the, the consequences and the efficacy of the lockdown, in, again, in peer reviewed journals. So I've, so I've been, I'm doing a lot of work on, on, on um, SARS-CoV-2 and on, on COVID, and in particular on, on, on this policy. I'm also the co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration, which is a, uh, a, a uh, basically it's an argument for focused protection of the, of the, uh, of the, of the, the people most vulnerable um, to the SARS-CoV-2 infection. Thank you. Um, one last question. Uh, did I understand you to say that you were uh, supportive of mandatory vaccination? No, no, I'm against mandatory vaccination. I think it's unethical to mandate the vaccine, vaccine in, in populations for whom it has not been tested. So for instance, there are no peer reviewed testing of the vaccine in children. You could not, you should not be mandating it in children. And for instance, all same thing with pregnant women. It's not, there's no uh, peer-reviewed evaluation of the vaccine in, in, uh, in, in uh, you know, randomized evaluations in pregnant women. So I don't think it's, it would be right to mandate the vaccine in that, those populations. I'm also against mandating vaccine more broadly. I think the vaccine is an incredibly important tool it's, it, it, and it and has been shown to be effective in some populations. And I think public health should strongly recommend in favor of the vaccine. But I think a, a mandating the vaccine would harm public health in, in, in ways I didn't discuss in my, in my comments, but I'm happy to elaborate on if you'd like. Thank you very much. Uh, the chair would like to call David Martin, who would like to speak in support of HCR2. Good morning, thank you. Good morning. Uh, Mr. Chair, in, in recognition of the uh, previous comment, I will dispense with the credentials first. <laughs> um, I, I am the founder of the first medical device contract research, research organization at the University of Virginia, um, IdeaMed. My background has been in over three decades of conducting clinical trials. My faculty positions were in the Department of Radiology and Orthopedic Surgery in the medical school. And in addition to that, I have since 1999 been an asset to the United States and foreign governments on studying the proliferation and counterproliferation of biological and chemical weapons violations worldwide, um, something that we have been quite concerned with. I am not going to be commenting specifically on any of the interventions per se, but I am in strong support of HRC2. And to put it in context, my concern comes out of a briefing that we did several years ago when Dr. Peter Daschik in February of 2016 made the following statement published at a National Academy of Sciences forum where he said, we need to increase public understanding of the need for medical countermeasures, such as a pan-coronavirus vaccine. A key driver is the media and the economics will follow the hype. We need to use that hype to our advantage to get to the real issues. Investors will respond if they see profit at the end of the process. We wrote a briefing at that time suggesting that there was a significant problem with NIAID, 
NIAID selecting not only the coronavirus itself, but specifically the Wuhan Institute of Virology Virus 1, which has a very close analog to what is currently considered SARS-CoV-2. We were very concerned when we realized that a study conducted by researchers in the European Journal of Epidemiology found that as many as 353 individuals between September and November of 2019, in advance of any disease in Wuhan, tested positive for what was called the SARS-CoV-2 IgG equivalent, suggesting that the SARS-CoV-2 fragment of what is considered to be one of the variants of SARS coronavirus was circulating in the population at least by September of 2019 three months in advance, at least, of China's first report. We were further troubled by the fact that when the 100 individuals with COVID-19 between October and December of 2019 had their blood assayed, 67 of the blood tests that were available out of the 100 individuals with COVID-19 were tested for antibodies for SARS-CoV-2 and there were none found. In other words, COVID-19, the symptoms, and SARS-CoV-2, the virus, in fact, have at best a modeled but not proven association. And that's been the case in France, that's been the case in Europe, um, across Europe, that's been the case in China, and it indeed is the case here. On March 13th, 2020, acting on unconfirmed Misleading and foreign supplied intelligence. Governor Chris T. Sununu recited false claims to justify the declaration of the state of emergency with the best of intentions. In the preamble to the declaration, he recited the causal statement linking, quote, a novel coronavirus to a disease with no evidence then or now substantiating that claim. At the time, several dozen known variants of SARS-CoV were published and no clinical evidence showed a, quote, virus, end quote, be uniquely causing a disease. In fact, according to research published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, as many as 45% of individuals testing positive using the RT-PCR determined infection with SARS-CoV-2 fragments never manifest COVID-19 symptoms whatsoever. While there may be an association, as yet unproven, linking the virus to the list of symptoms now aggregated under COVID-19 designation, at the time of the declaration, both the statement of novelty and causality were conjecture, not fact. Furthermore, he stated that the, quote, state of New Hampshire has been working in close collaboration with the CDC, quote, since December 2019 to monitor and plan for the potential spread of COVID-19 to the United States, end quote. This claim tests credibility as COVID-19 was not identified nor named until February 2020. And the CDC has no record in the public of any such collaboration. So no such action has been documented. Relying on computer simulations from the United Kingdom, he recited unproven allegations about the spread of COVID-19, an erroneous statement as viruses, not symptoms, can spread. And he recited the fact that they spread by respiratory droplets, another statement that has not yet been established with any clinical evidence. And that is a very important point. While there have been environmental studies modeling the spread of how the virus may move across time and space, with the exception of a modeled study in a hospital setting where data collection was done at varying proximities to a patient, while they did show that a virus in fact did move across time and space in that particular setting, no study of transmissivity with infectivity has ever been established with SARS-CoV-2, and that remains the case today. In short, relying on hearsay rather than on independent inquiry, Governor Sununu enacted a state of emergency in coordination with others 
without considering the ample evidence to indicate that factors other than public health emergency were at play. Preservation of the state of emergency serves commercial interests federally under the PREP Act for limited liability for medical countermeasures, but serves no public health interest. And I have submitted an extensive written testimony to the committee um, by email yesterday. Chair will recognize Robert Clay, uh, Senator and all around good guy. Uh, Mr. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. I just wanted to come on today. I'm in favor of House uh, Concurrent Resolution 2. I wanted to come on and give people a little history of, of how we got to where we are. Back after 9-11, um, the governor at the time was caught in Washington, D.C., leaving the state of New Hampshire in a unique position of having the Senate president being charged. <clears throat> what we found out at that time is that only the governor had access to emergency management and a whole lot of other um, systems that we needed to, to, to share at the time. We worked out a way of getting things done because the governor was stranded, oh, I think for at least a week, uh, since all the roads were, were shut down. What we found during uh, the 9-11 time is that we were being uh, threatened with anthrax attacks. Um, we also did some mock drills to see what would happen if we were attacked with chemical warfare. And we found that we were um, extremely unprepared um, for any kind of attack and, and any kind of um, work that might need to be done. So I'm giving you the short version. What we did is after we got things rolling and, and we started uh, gaining some momentum, we worked not uh, as a partisan group, but as a bipartisan group. We worked with the governor and we came up with what you see in, in 445. But the intent was that should we be struck again and the legislature not be able to meet, somebody had to take charge. Before 9-11, before the governor could just to stay in charge for more than 21 days. We never fathomed that something would happen where the legislature could never come together and meet and take control of what needed to be done in the state of New Hampshire. So... We, we said 21 days, but if we were attacked more than once or on a continuous basis, we still needed a way to continue to lead the state, which is why we put the provision in that said he could renew it. But again, it was never renew it with the ability of the legislature to meet. It was to renew so that without a legislature, we continued to do what was necessary for the state of New Hampshire. What I've seen today, uh, or, or under the Coronavirus um, Emergency Act, um, is, is totally opposite of anything we ever fathomed as a group of people, a bipartisan group. We always figured that a governor would never want to be in total control, and the legislature would want to meet and actually do what was ever necessary. So I'm in favor of House Concurrent Resolution 2. We, we put that in, by the way, so that no matter what and no matter who, the legislature could come in at any time during that 21 days and say, okay, enough, we're back, the Republic, the Republic is going to work, and we'll take it from here. It was never to stop the constant renewal of an emergency order. So while I think that we had all the right intentions at the time, um, as Justice Delanus used to say, if that's what you meant, make sure that's what it says. And I'm hopeful that you'll pass House Concurrent Resolution 2 and that you'll tweak the law as it is to say that the governor can't just unilaterally decide to renew an order that gives him total control and only allows him to do so in a situation where the legislature can't possibly meet together in a quorum to actually take control and do what's necessary. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. I'll take any questions if you have any. Uh, the chair will call Elliot Axelman. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the committee. My name is Elliot. I live in Hooksett, New Hampshire. I am a husband, a brother, a son, and an uncle. I am also a paramedic. I've dedicated my life to helping others, mostly by providing medical care to those in need. I spent around three years as a young EMT 
volunteering an average of 30 hours a week to provide medical care to my community, only resigning because paramedic school demanded my time. I'm a critical care and flight certified paramedic, which is technically the highest level of certification that any pre-hospital provider could attain in the United States. I've spent 10 years in emergency medical services, working on an ambulance, in multiple 911 agencies and multiple critical care transport agencies, managing acutely and chronically ill patients on ventilators, IV pumps, and all sorts of other equipment. I've treated over 10,000 patients throughout my career. My experience also includes working in a coronavirus hospital in May during the pandemic as a member of, as a paramedic and a member of their critical rapid response team. All of my experience and research leads me to believe that COVID is not nearly as contagious as the elites have made it seem. All of my experience and research leads me to believe that COVID is not nearly as deadly as the elites and politicians have made it seem. However, even if it were the most contagious and deadly virus in history of humanity, the restrictions imposed by the governor and his regulators rival the most tyrannical regimes that I know of in history. For some of these restrictions to be in effect in the supposedly freest state is nothing short of a disgrace. For this state of emergency to have gone on for a year and that it remains in effect indefinitely with no signs of ever being terminated is unconscionable. I believe that the only justification for a governor declaring a state of emergency and acting without input from the legislature is in the presence of a real imminent threat, such as missiles literally being in the air fired by a foreign military. Common sense would dictate that the governor could, without consulting the legislature, order a defensive maneuver to intercept those missiles because 30 seconds could make a big difference and assembling a legislature for a meeting and passing legislation would actually have a very negative effect and could not defend our state. But that's not what happened in this case. In this case, it was a virus that initially was thought to maybe be an emergency. And I believe the plan initially was for uh, 15 days to slow the spread. We were all convinced by our governor that if we all clamped down very hard for 15 days, we could get back to normal afterwards. And that if we did not, we would all die. And now a year later, we are all still alive, but we are living under a dictator who has rendered this legislature irrelevant and taken over complete power of the state. And it shows no signs of ending. If there is one thing that I know, it's what an emergency looks like. This was never an emergency, certainly not in New Hampshire, and it certainly is not an emergency today. Using the force of government and police to quarantine even a person confirmed to be contagious with the most deadly virus like Ebola is difficult, violates liberty, and technically is legally and morally questionable at best. And it should be used with the utmost caution. But politicians have gone far beyond that in this case locking down and restricting the movements and the commerce and even the breathing of individuals who are not confirmed to have the virus. This violates due process. Even people who test negative for the virus one moment cannot legally breathe in New Hampshire without a mask one second after a negative test result. Not only is every person presumed to be sick with the virus, it is impossible for a supposedly free person to prove to politicians and police that we are not sick. Even if we test negative, we still have to wear the mask. Even if we had the virus a year ago, even if we got both vaccines, the very basis of a proper justice system in this modern world is the presumption of innocent until proven guilty. In the current scenario, we are all presumed to be guilty. In this case means infected and contagious with the virus. And it is impossible to prove that one is innocent, or in this case, not sick. This might be comparable to a justice system in a place like North Korea. Not only have our most natural rights been violated, but this was done not by a legislative body, which somewhat represent the people, but by executive order of one politician, assuming the power of a dictator, technically speaking, issuing more than 80 emergency orders over the past year. And this body has remained silent throughout. Mr. Ackland, can, can we wrap this up? Yes, sir, I have one more paragraph. Thank you. It'll be 30 seconds. Making this lockdown even more ridiculous is that the official statistics are inflated by 100 to 1,000 fold. In my expert opinion, I have a few thousand sources and an article to this effect has been submitted to the record already. You now have the authority to pass this resolution, HCR2, and end the state of emergency while taking powers back to the, for the legislative body. Though this will not make up for the children who missed a year of their childhoods because they were brainwashed into thinking they will die if they play with their friends or even lower their mask for an instant, you could never give back the months of time the governor took from people who wanted nothing more than to spend time with their parents, grandparents, and other loved ones. 
many of which no longer have that opportunity, nor will this compensate every business that has been permanently put out of business by the governor. Many people are referring to this current state of emergency as child abuse or elder abuse, and it's getting harder to argue with them, and I'm starting to see their merit. For the sake of everything cherished by our great state, I ask you to please vote yes on HCR2 and restore some liberty and personal responsibility to our citizens. Please end the dictatorship. Thank you. I'd be happy to take questions. Next, the chair will call uh, the Honorable Jeff Oligny. Yes, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, committee members. Former Representative Jeff Oligny, I'll be very brief. There are a thousand reasons why I hope you support uh, HCR2. I won't review them with you today. One of, one of your speakers uh, by the name of David, I believe, uh, had some very uh, good information. It was rather technical. I would ask if he could give us a one, one or two sentence blurb on his summary, if he's still available, that would be terrific. I am an engineer by trade, um, and I found his, his uh, dissertation very informative, but rather technical and a little bit overwhelming on, on information. The bottom line is, and the reason I support this is, as, as Ronald Reagan said, I'm from the government, I'm here to help, and geez, that doesn't always work so well. Our governor, in, in, in his defense, he assembled a large, diverse team to guide him on this issue uh, almost a year ago now, and what have we gotten? I, I'll summarize by saying what I think we got was a mistake. This is a mistake, this lockdown, these, these uh, state of emergency has been a mistake for many months now, as you've heard previous testimony, uh, this should have been canceled long ago. Um, I'm a student of statistics myself, and despite all of the experts advising the governor, there is no statistical basis uh, to conclude that this, this state of emergency should have progressed the way it has, simply none. Um, so I will end it there. I, I urge you please support uh, ending this, uh, this uh, problem. And I think this is a case study that shows that if we assemble a large group of politicians, we all don't necessarily get the right answer. Uh, our governor decided to, to decided to take the route which was comfortable and favorable to many people under the guise of empathy and protecting you, uh, as opposed to promoting personal responsibility and asking you to protect yourself if you are an at-risk person. That's it. That's it for my comments. Thanks for hearing me. I I will uh, I will take no questions. Uh, the chair will call Ed Maslich. Good morning. My name is one of the supporters of the of the resolution. I have been a practicing attorney for 25 years, and I have litigated constitutional law cases. Although, admittedly, I have never litigated a constitutional case analogous to the issue before the committee today. That's because the issue before the committee today is unprecedented in American history with the possible exception of the Japanese internment camps. Before I focus on the individual trees of the forest that make the current emergency order unconstitutional, I think it makes sense to begin by focusing on the forest itself. Constitutions are written not for the purpose of giving government broad powers. Rather, constitutions are written for the purpose of limiting government power in order to promote human flourishing and individual liberty. Indeed, Articles 1 and 2 of the New Hampshire Bill of Rights specifically provide that all individuals are born free and independent and have the inherent right to seek and obtain happiness in accordance with their own judgment. The emergency order and the reasons offered in support of it contradict those foundational principles of constitutional government. One of the foundational principles of a free society <clears throat> is the presumption of innocence. Again, that presumption of innocence is implied in Articles 1 and 2 of the New Hampshire Bill of Rights. People born free and independent with the inherent right to seek and obtain happiness are necessarily innocent until proven guilty. Indeed, if one studies the history of the American Revolution, it was fought as much over the opposition to taxation without representation as it was over the Crown's use of general warrants known as writs of assistance. Articles two, Article 2B of the New Hampshire Constitution codifies the protection by providing that an individual's right to live free from government intrusion in private and personal affairs is natural, essential, and inherent. But the emergency order does not treat all individuals as free and independent. It does not start with the presumption that individuals have a right to privacy or that they have a right to seek and obtain happiness according to their judgment. Nor does it start with the presumption of innocence. Instead, the broad emergency powers exercised by the executive under this emergency order presumes all individuals either have COVID or are spreaders of COVID. For the first time in American history, we are quarantining not just people who have been specifically identified as having a contagious and communicable disease. Instead, the emergency order serves as a general warrant limiting the freedom of all individuals in New Hampshire 
including those for whom there is no evidence of COVID infection. Further, even those who prove that they do not have COVID are treated as though they have COVID. This is completely different from the quarantines that took place at Ellis Island with regard to immigrants who were inspected and found to have a communicable disease. It's also completely different from, decide a more modern example, the quarantining of individuals who contracted the Ebola virus. Quarantining the sick is different in kind from quarantining everyone, including those for whom the government has no specific evidence of infection. I challenge any supporter of the emergency order to articulate any private conduct that is immune from restriction by the governor should the governor simply assert a connection between the conduct and stopping the spread of COVID. Does the governor have the power to order under the order to send the National Guard to people's homes to inspect and confirm that all individuals in the dwelling do not have COVID and are practicing social distancing? Does the governor have the power to send the National Guard to private dwellings and compel individuals to be vaccinated? More generally, can the supporters of the governor's emergency powers articulate any limiting principle to the executive's power under this emergency order? I do not see any such limiting principle. Turning quickly to the trees, here is a brief list of the constitutional provisions that I believe the emergency order violates. From the New Hampshire Bill of Rights, Article 1's guarantee that all men are born free and independent. Article 2's guarantee that all individuals have the right to acquire property and seek and obtain happiness according to their own judgment. Article 2B's guarantee of the individual's right to privacy. Article 5's guarantee that no man shall be restrained in the exercise of his religious worship. Article 15's guarantee of, among other things, the presumption of innocence. Article 19's prohibition on the use of general warrants by the executive. Article 29's requirement that any suspension of law be exercised by the, by the legislature, not any other branch of the government. And Article 37's guarantee of a separation of powers between the legislative, executive, and judicial branches. The emergency powers exercised by the executive also violate the provisions of the New Hampshire Constitution set forth in Part 2 relating to form of government. Specifically, the emergency powers violate Article 2, which vests all legislative power in the House of Representatives and Senate, not the, not the executive. Article 5, which likewise recognizes only the legislature as possessing the power to exercise legislative powers. Article 41, which grants the executive only the power to faithfully execute the laws, not to make laws. And the latter half of Article 83, which guarantees free and fair competition in trades and industries for all people. I note further that the provisions of Article 51 strongly suggest that the emergency powers currently being exercised exceed the constitutional grant of authority to the executive. Article 51 states that even in times of insurrection and invasion, the governor as commander in chief still must exercise emergency powers consistent with all rules, regulations, and the constitution of the state. Thus, even insofar as a statute delegating emergency power from the legislature to the governor purports to grant the governor power to violate separation of powers and support and suspend constitutional guarantees, such delegation itself violates Article 51, not to mention Articles 2 and 5 of Part 2 of the state constitution. Furthermore, there is little doubt that as bad as COVID may be, it is certainly not a greater emergency than insurrection or invasion. The emergency powers exercised by the executive here also violate provisions of the federal constitution, including Article 4, Section 4's guarantee of a Republican form of government, as well as analogous federal guarantees as set forth above in the New Hampshire constitution. But because my time is limited, I won't get into those. Thank you. If you have questions, I'm here to take them.